Good morning. It really is a special treat for me to be here. It uh, feels a little bit like homecoming to be at Waterford. My family and I were here when we lived closer in the east side of town uh, to this campus and then went back to Herndon uh, when we chose to move downtown to be part of an effort with friends from the downtown business community to help revitalize a community that's been distressed. And it's been an incredible joy uh, for us as a family to build relationships and sweet friendships there. I was sitting in my living room the other day thinking about uh, this sermon and time with you and my son sat next to me and somehow as we started talking we got on the subject of the time he got lost at Universal Studios. Uh, I actually wasn't there so it felt good to wash my hands of the trauma but he <laughs> told me how he and his mother and aunt and cousins and sister were all hanging out together and they were walking in one direction when uh, his my sister-in-law suggested that the kids all stand by this fancy show car to take a picture and uh, he ran immediately to do that but his older cousins and sister decided that was not cool for them and so they did not follow so by the time he made it to the car and turned around to pose for the picture he couldn't see where everybody else went and it took a couple seconds before he realized maybe they were not coming back or did not see where he had ran to so he found an adult as he should do and they uh, had an officer there a few minutes later he said the whole thing took about 10 minutes before uh, his mom and the rest of the family came back and found him and asked him how he felt and he said well I, I was crying for a little bit but I was excited and happy when they found me. There's something about his story that reminds me about uh, the importance of remembering what it feels like to be lost, to know we are lost, to know that we want to be found, and the joy that comes in being found. And that sounds simple and obvious enough to all of us, but the fact is it isn't always that easy. Um, no matter how smart we think we are. Um, it's a little bit like um, finding yourself lost without knowing that you're lost. Uh, I've done that. I uh, once was leaving a meeting uh, out of a building, realized I needed to go to the restroom real quick, saw a sign and dashed right in. You see where the story's going already. And so I was, I'm in this ladies room, but it hasn't dawned on me yet. Uh, there's no one else there. I see a vase with some flowers and I'm like, well, that's interesting, you know, and it's unusually clean and neat and actually smells good. And so they, yeah, they went through the expense of not just having urinals, but separate toilets with dividers. This is just amazing. I use the bathroom, I'm washing my hands, I'm about to walk out when a woman walks in and she looks at me like, what are you doing here? The funny thing is I look at her for a second, like, what are you doing here? And so sometimes we just don't realize how lost we are. And that is a theme for some of us for good chunks of our lives. And in fact, there's a big part of what it means to be human that is experienced with a sense of lostness. A little bit of what you get if you walk into a movie theater in the middle of a movie where you just don't know exactly what's going on and who's good and who's bad and where are we going right now. If you're visiting us this Sunday morning, we're in the middle of a story. We've been going over several weeks through the series of the parables of the kingdom. And this is Christ's sermon series in a sense. We're in the middle of the book of Matthew. Matthew is writing this letter, the narrative of the teachings of Christ and the memories of his experiences with the Lord as a disciple to a Jewish people. It's the reason why he does not call it the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of heaven to really address their sensitivities and never using the Lord's name in vain in any way. And so as he writes this letter, he's trying to clue, provide clues for them of who Christ is, the Messiah, 
the new Moses, the real king of Israel. And as he uh, organizes the teachings of Christ, at this point in the book by chapter 13, Christ has uh, launched his ministry after being baptized by John the Baptist. He's uh, announced what the kingdom is that is coming. He has now done the Sermon on the Mount, describing what life in this kingdom is like. He's done wonders and signs and all sorts of miracles that no one could have ever even imagined and even commissioned his disciples. But there have been sort of a series of different reactions to this good news about the kingdom. For his own family, the people of his own home, his brothers still openly doubt him and are not really counted among his followers. Even John the Baptist is wondering, are you really the one that we were waiting for? Um, for the Pharisees, uh, they've lost their patience already. He's offended them one way or the other too many times, done too many signs and wonders on a Sabbath. Uh, they've already decided that he is not only a heretic who must be killed, but if he's doing miracles, it is only by the power of Satan. But those who are following him, those who know their loss and find in his eyes the acceptance of a loving, loving Lord and teacher who receives them, as they are, are leaning in and hanging on every word. It says that on this day, he has stepped outside of the house, stood on a boat so that he could speak to the whole crowd. And uh, he's walked through the parable of the sower and the weeds and the leaven and the mustard seed. And now he's walking back into the house and he's with the disciples. And as they're going in, they're asking like, could you flesh that out a little bit more for us? They've already asked them, why on earth do you always teach in parables? Uh, why not just speak more clearly? And, he, and he's revealed to them the fact that the parables are being used by him with the intent of veiling or concealing what those who do not want to believe in him refuse to agree or acknowledge that it is evident that before them is the Christ. And at the same time, the parables will reveal the mystery to those who already believe. So this very simple truth can be taken at face value. They're not meant to be analyzed and pulled apart and theologically understood at every level for every word. They're meant to be taken a whole. But when taken with faith, they unlock for us the treasure of the truth. So Jesus is inside the house. He's with his disciples. He's explaining the parable of the weeds. So we're in the middle of the series, in the middle of a parable, in the middle of an explanation, when he drops this couplet, these two mini parables almost. They're so short and sweet and they're meant to go together in the middle of an explanation for the deeper truth that they're asking for. When we uh, look at God's word, this book is meant to be approached in just that way. Uh, it, is, it has truth for us to live by. It has instruction, but it's not an instruction manual. Uh, it has text, but it's not a textbook. Uh, it has history, but it's not a history book. In many ways, we should approach it with that same humility and curiosity of someone who has lost and has found a treasure. With that heart in mind, let's read his word in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. 
Now, if you uh, grew up going to church at all, or if you've heard teachings about this parable before, you've heard this beautiful, simple truth. These words have in them a wonderful teaching of an understanding of what it should be, what it should look like when we find, stumble upon the great truth of the gospel. The man who's walking the field uh, offers us a lens by which to interpret the scripture. And the one that we've heard the most is one that starts by um, the discipline of finding ourselves in the passage. Who might I be in this passage for me to apply it to my life? And so if I'm the man and I'm stumbling in the, on this treasure in a field and the treasure is the gospel of God and I go off and sell everything I have because I value what I have found to be so much greater than the value of everything I have. That all I own to me would be happily sold. I'd quickly get rid of it in order to get a hold of this for the joy of the treasure. Now, this doesn't translate so pleasantly to everyone in Christ's audience. Um, the, this is the idea of the kingdom in some ways that he's been trying to convey, but it's not being well received. Just think of someone like a Pharisee who's given their whole life to try to live an honorable, righteous, law-abiding existence and role model for their community to be told that all they need to do is believe in Jesus, that all their good works are for naught. It's not easy to be told that your best efforts are not enough. I have a buddy who's always challenged me to, one, be good about having date nights uh, with my wife. And so we kind of are accountability buddies in that category. And then to not do the same old, same old when we do go on a date night. That it's easy to go to the place I know that I'm going to like, but that it's actually a little bit more romantic to try something new, even if it's a hole in the wall. And so I'm always trying to find some new place to try that we haven't done. And uh, my wife and I decided uh, we did dinner one night and then afterwards did an escape room. Now, it was just the two of us, so it was extra hard to kind of figure out all the clues and get to the bottom of every single kind of drawer and key. And as we were working through this room, made our way to another room, and we're really making progress on the final clues to get access to this one door that we got unlocked. And I feel sort of that winning sensation of getting close to the end of this challenge when the woman who runs the place walks in to stop us because we've run out of time. And so I sigh when I see her and I was like, man, I was so close to finally finishing this. And she was like, oh no, there's a whole wing with several other doors you haven't got to. <laughs> and it stung so bad. I was like, I really thought I was so close. We had done so poorly. And so for the Pharisees, this is kind of what they hear in Jesus. Like I've worked so hard. I'm a good person. You can't tell me that's worth nothing. But if you're the prostitute or the tax collector or the social outcast, what you hear Jesus say is, I am worthy of nothing and you still want this? You would trade you for this? And Jesus is looking at all of us knowing that all of our good deeds are nothing but rags, filthy rags, and he says he wants you still. The notion of understanding how to receive the teaching of the treasure, what is the treasure and how we respond to it, um, was not easy to conceive, especially when you consider that oftentimes we hear the reality of what it would feel like to really believe that Jesus is your everything. Is he your everything? Are you willing to give everything up for him? 
When Grace taught the parable of the sower, she talked about the idea or the, told the story of a woman in India whose house was burned down because of persecution over the fact that her and her family had professed to be Christians. Trying to save her daughter, she rushed in, she said, and still lived with the scars of that fire. And when asked about it, said she would happily suffer for what Christ has done for her. How many of us truly know how to value so much what he's been given that everything we treasure seems small in comparison? And so this invitation has been um, not only a great challenge, but a great inspiration in my life, I'm sure for many of you in this room, to consider, do I really surrender to the Lord? And maybe you've surrendered the thought of your eternal destination, but um, maybe you still need to surrender other things. Have you really surrendered your loved ones? Have you really surrendered what's in the bank account? Have you really surrendered the hopes for your retirement, your calling and what you give your life to, your career and how you think it should go? Are these all things that have really been laid at the feet of the cross for him to do with you as he pleases? There's another challenge um, with this idea, however, that not only can it inspire great commitment and surrender. But the other side of it is that sometimes Christians, the mean ones, the religious people that give a bad rap to the faith, the folks that are judgmental and short and unforgiving are often people who live serving a God who's demanding and unforgiving and short with them who live under the oppression of this great challenge to live such sacrificial lives, always leaning forward, needing the, the demand of more in their lives to be surrendered to God. And so therefore they expect from everyone else an impossible standard. And so sometimes you may not be saying no to Christ, but saying yes in a way that doesn't make you the kind of person that represents him to other people. Uh, an even further challenge with this interpretation of the passage is one my son pointed out to the BCL staff at Herndon not so long ago. They were producing a video and wanted to get kids to make comments about this passage. And they asked Christopher, my eight-year-old, uh, what he thought about the story of the man uh, in this parable. And as he reacted, he said, you know, they asked him, what do you think he felt when he sold everything to get the pearl? He says, well, I'm sure he was happy and excited. And he scratched his head. He said, you know, I wasn't going to say this, but isn't he now just standing there with nothing but a pearl to cover his privates? Because he got rid of everything. <laughs> this is where his mind went. He said, the guy has nothing now but this pearl. <laughs> there is something to the thought that all of our stuff is just not enough still, right? It's still just not enough. When I talked about coming to the scriptures with a kind of open-heartedness and humility, it's um, just like I mentioned, finding ourselves in the middle of a story, it's important when we read God's word to not just pull out the single passage and walk away with a positive thought for the day. But it's inviting us to dig deeper. When you run into something that makes no sense, that you have a hard time believing, it's supposed to do that. You're not supposed to buy it wholesale and just believe it because that's what the Sunday school teacher taught you. You're supposed to wrestle with it, talk about it, read more around it, go back, go forward. It's the whole idea of the Bible being this treasure that pulls you deeper. So let's peel back a little bit to this conversation Jesus is having. If he's explaining to them the meaning of a larger parable within a series of parables, how has he explained those? What setting has he set? 
Because if one way to interpret this passage is to look for ourselves in the passage, another way is to look for Jesus in the passage. Because earlier in chapter 13, Jesus made clear that the man was the son of man, that he was the man, that the field was the world. And if he's selling everything, giving everything up to buy the field, because in that field he wants the treasure, who could be the treasure? My brother, my sister, my friend this morning, you are his treasure. We just finished singing the song. For the joy set before him. For the joy of having you home in his arms, back in the family of God. Because we were once created in fellowship with him and every day in his presence we enjoyed. But since the fall and we sold out the privilege of this world and the authority he gave us here. From Noah to Abram to the family of Israel to the people of God throughout history, he has been calling out his own to help them bring back his children, bring them home. But to those of us who know that, who know that we were lost and want to be found and know the joy of being found, this is a special privilege. He's explaining to the disciples that not everyone is going to get this. When they ask about why parables, he says to them, look, to you it is given to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but not to them. You can debate with him whether you think that's fair or not, but he's chosen you. He's chosen to give you a special privilege with the knowledge of his truth. And when we contemplate what it means when they let it sink in to understand that he has sought them and has paid the ultimate price for them, we could live them then in the joy. It's this little phrase tucked in the middle of that verse that the man in his joy sells everything. It is this joy that Jesus found in you that we find in him when we live like people who know we have been found. And that is the joy of the gospel, of the good news of this kingdom. That when we realize what's been done for us that we could not do for ourselves, we might find the overabundant joy to want the same for other people, to want them to know the joy of being found. This version of good news is at the center of what Christ is teaching. It's a knowledge that he once has to have and to hold. But sometimes... It takes loss to understand how badly we want him to be our hero. It was uh, exactly 18 years ago, and I was, I'd rushed to the hospital for the birth of my, um, first, my sister's firstborn. Uh, Noah was born a beautiful, healthy baby. That's an unusually big head, I used to say, but he was beautiful. Um, and uh, it, no one else had arrived yet, so it's my sister, my brother-in-law, and the baby. And um, my sister uh, proceeds to breastfeed him for the first time. And while they're doing that, we're talking and catching up and just happy and elated in the moment. About a few, 10 minutes go by, and um, Marilyn looks down to check on Noah, and he's blue. He somehow has choked and has stopped breathing for a little bit now. And as I'm screaming at the nurses in the nurse station, I see my brother-in-law on his knees on the side of the bed, begging the Lord. Um, Please don't do this, he says. 
the nurses rush in and soon there's an army of them. There's 10 of them. We grab the baby. They get him back breathing. And um, before you know it, he's back in the arms of his mother. But it felt like an hour. It was probably 10 seconds. Um, Noah's 18 years old today. Uh, he is uh, a young man, healthy in every way. Um, but there's not a day that I don't see him, that his parents, that we still don't have a soft spot for this guy. Um, because just the, the fear having potentially lost him makes us treasure the gift that he is. Understanding the gift that we've been giving and appreciating from the, the place of having been lost, this great gift should compel us to want others to have the joy of being found. When I think about this for us, the, there's this uh, first step that seems easy to miss, and it's the knowledge of the lost, to know that you are lost. Because it is possible uh, to find ourselves either so smart or so comfortable or so uneasy with what the word challenges us with to think that we don't need it, that we don't need to be found, uh, that in fact we might be just fine. I've been so blessed to be living in this moment of the history of Summit. Uh, yes, I am a bad penny on the board. They just can't get rid of me yet. Uh, but the idea of what God is stirring up in our community to be a, a, a church body that is actively making our community better. As, not as some transactional quid pro quo with the world, but because we are the people of God and that is what the people of God do. And one of the expressions have been these sort of foster care support families and coming around families in that way. And for my wife, Giselle, and I, that's been part of our story for some years when a, a friend of mine called me to be the godfather of a child they would adopt, which turned into adopting a sibling set of five. Um, and as they've been on this journey with this family and their, their blended family of biological and adopted children, it's been a, a journey of great many joys. But a few years ago, their eldest, who had lived the longest in the prior situation where the children were homeless and wandered around uh, the city, and they, the, he had more memories of that life. And so as a teenager, uh, conflicted by the rules and boundaries of a loving home, he found it better to just pursue his own independence and leave uh, being under that roof. For months, we didn't know where he was. We had gotten word that he was uh, sleeping in the woods, uh, that he had befriended some folks, but that uh, the folks that would see him and talk to him, he kept saying that he was happy and he was fine and no intention of coming back. Um, I, our office used to be in Lake Eola downtown uh, before we moved it to the west side and um, we would always run into folks uh, right, by there, right there on Lake Eola that were homeless. And uh, one day someone knocked on my door and it was him. So my godson I love introducing me to his fiance, uh, telling me how they had this wonderful tent that was working just great for them. I remember going to lunch and um, we ended up doing that several times and I remember never feeling more helpless uh, because I know, I knew in those conversations that there was a loving family and a home and a, a warm bed and everything he could want and need waiting for him and he was just opting to not have it. He's moved away now. We stay in touch through Facebook. We'll message every once in a while and I'll hear how they're doing. But it's been a reminder for me that we can, we can not know that we're lost. We can be lost and not want to be found. And in our joy, as we pursue 
being the kind of people who know they've been found, that have been seen by Christ as a precious treasure, his unique people. You are the one he sings over as you sleep. His inheritance, the one he boasts about having as his own people in that special privilege. We have a great stewardship responsibility to share with others, whether they know they need it or not, the joy of being found. I've recently been um, just compelled by the history of men that have made a significant history, a significant impact on my life uh, and yours. Uh, two in particular I only just recently realized were contemporaries, uh, William Wilberforce in the United Kingdom and Thomas Jefferson. I was in uh, Charlottesville earlier this year uh, for an event with a group of leaders who had studied his biography. Um, and the community as a whole has found itself torn with our inability oftentimes to understand that all of us are flawed, that leaders uh, who bear great virtue also may have incredible flaws. Hebrews never had a problem with this. They had no problem telling you that David was a man chosen after uh, God, that God loved and did horrific things. But in the midst of those conversations, I was just struck, struck by the commonality with my hero, William Wilberforce, of the caption of a simple truth that had captured the imagination of both of these men. And the truth was that all men are created equal. The simple little idea would find its way in the makings of the Declaration of Independence, the documents and the leading ideas that led to the founding of America and this incredible country and all the opportunities it affords and the beautiful things that make us so fortunate to live here is an invention of a group of men who saw it so revolutionary to demand the same rights as monarchy, found it maybe too much to ambition for more pass the buck for future generations to figure out the great trouble of slavery. But somehow across the pond, a man also born in privilege with great advantages in life stumbles upon the same biblical truth, is convicted of his life as a sinner in need of God's forgiveness, is mentored by the famed John Newton, who himself had been a slave trader, and now, having been born again as an evangelical Christian, uh, was mentoring this young man and challenged him along with a community of Christians who uh, were known back then as the Clapton sect because they believed that to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, connoted not only meditation and reflection on truth, but action on the world. And he believed and learned from them that he did not have to, that to give up his life to sell it all and trade it for what God Christ was inviting him into didn't mean surrendering the privileges he'd been given, but actually laying them at, a, at the feet of the Lord for him to use as he pleased. And in his case, that meant serving in parliament and giving his entire life to the great objects, the abolition of slavery and the reformation of the culture of England. In a span of 40 years, what took us generations and ultimately a civil war and the bloodiest of all and an incredible price in our country, we still in many ways bear today. That group of believers banded together, businessmen and women, politicians, cultural leaders and literate blacks who became influencers and advocates in that movement, not only successfully abolished slavery in the entire kingdom, 
They would, in less than a lifetime, completely transform a culture that was absolutely given to debauchery and immorality and the most awful public displays of sinfulness gone amok in an entire society into a place uh, known forever as the, the birthplace of the Victorian era, a place of propriety and social cohesion. They founded over 200 organizations to care for orphans and for widows, to fix up streets, to fund Bible studies and Sunday schools and missions. The, the idea of how a small group of people who understand that they have been found and in the blessing of that special privilege, see the stewardship of inviting others to be part of the kingdom of God here and now speaks to me and to us in this place and in this time. I am so excited to consider what God might be doing in our church as each of you, not from this pulpit, not just as an institutional statement, but you personally open God's word and don't pick and choose the parts that you like, but let it as a whole speak to you and demand even more than what you think you can offer and more than you know how to value what he values in you. And may that obedience bring about the kingdom of God in this city, maybe like we've never seen it before. John's words for that are now so famous that open up uh, that incredible hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for chasing us down in our rebellion for finding us in our lostness, for wanting us even as we rolled in muck and mire. From there, you picked us up and gave us a new name and an inheritance in you. Lord, I pray, help us to remember we were lost. Do not stop coming to your word with the humility of the lost and desire to be found in new ways every day as we understand how the God who loved us so much desires to love those around us through us. On this day, O oh Lord, call us deeper into your word and awaken in our souls the joy that you have set before us in you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.